Welcome back to the Mark Steiner Show on your source for cool jazz and more. WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. Um, all right, so I read the DOJ report. I'm going to tell y'all, I'm sorry, I'm going to tell you all. <laughs> I'm going to tell y'all like three stories, right? Like three police stories. Like every black guy has a police story. Every black person, every black uh, man and woman has a police story. I'm going to tell you three police stories. So uh, several years ago, uh, getting in a car accident, uh, hanging out in the office kind of like late, late. Um, the, 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 my car smash is totaled. And we don't have the loot to get a new car. We don't even have the loot to get a car from the uh, to get a um, to get a um, a loaner right from the from car insurance. So um, I reached out to the Qs. I reached out to my fraternity brothers. One of them actually uh, was uh, he worked at a car dealership, so he was able to give me like a brand new car for a week. But then after that, we were basically you know borrowing hoopties from our people, right? So. I remember one time uh, we had, I borrowed a car from my now former wife's friend um, that had a tail light out. So we drove, I drove that car, and I took the long way home. I lived in Ashburton in the Western District, and I would take the long way home because I had this tail light out and I didn't want the police to stop me. Driving the long way home up Liberty Heights, past BCC, BCCC. In fact, they stopped me right um, next to the. Uh, Right next to the gas station on, like, Liberty Heights, and I think it's Druid Hill. And the police asked me, debt to rights. Now, here's the thing. It's not just about the stoplight. I did not have my driver's license because I left my driver's license over my fraternity brother's house. I did not have a photo ID because I had my office ID at the office. And although I knew that it was one of my wife's friends, I forgot her name. So when the police officer asked me for all this stuff, I had none of it. I had none of it. What happened? Nothing. The police officer, you know, I, I'm telling the police officer the story. In fact, it's funny because the police officer is in the process. He's like, wow, are you going to tell me the truth? I'm like, officer, are you going to let me finish my story? So I finished telling him the story, and he gives me nothing. No ticket, no nothing. Second story, and I'm not going to actually tell the third. I think the second story will be enough. Second story, <laughs> and the producers are, like, laughing at me, right? Like, how did, how did this happen? So, second story, a few uh, months after that, I'm driving uh, a new minivan. Finally, got a minivan, um, and I'm driving all my kids back from probably the Y or something, and I am on Greenspring. I'm probably outside the Western District, but I'm still in Baltimore, driving up uh, Greenspring. Um, and as I get off of 83 to turn, uh, to turn on to Greenspring, um, a police officer does a U-turn and starts following me. Then another one starts following him. And then another one starts following him. And then they're, so they're all following me, and I know they're following me. And I'm like, wow, I made a good signal. What do I, what do, I do? So they stop me. I still don't have a driver's license, by the way. I know I'm random and trifling. I left my, I, I hadn't gone to get, get my driver's license. You know, in fact, I probably left it at the crib or something, right? So they stop me, and it's dark, and they come up to me. You know, all of them get out the car, flashlights and everything, and they and they come up to me and they're like, "We'd gotten word that somebody in a minivan like yours was waving a gun wildly on the street." But we now know that wasn't you. That is now this. That, that, now they say all this before they even talk to me. So it's like they basically just flashed their lights around, looked at me, and they're like, "It's like they said to themselves, this couldn't possibly be the guy who was waving the gun around." So they asked me for my license again. I didn't have it, and I got nothing. I got nothing. So I start out with those two stories, and then lead into the. Uh, uh, into our um, our discussion about the DOJ. I'm joined by Jordan Camp. Jordan Camp is a postdoctoral fellow of race and ethnicity and international public affairs at Brown University. He's the author of Incarcerating the Crisis, Freedom Struggles, and the Rise of the Neoliberal State. He's the co-editor of Policing the Planet, Why the Policing Crisis Led to Black Lives Matter. And then I'm also joined by Lady Breon. Lady Breon is a spoken word artist and Baltimore's Grand Slam champion. Congratulations. <laughs> that is you. so dope. I'm so happy for you. 
and so proud of you. Uh, resident poet for Leaders of Beautiful Struggle and program manager for Do More Baltimore. Uh, Jordan, uh, uh, Jordan and Lady Brianna, I'm glad to have you guys. So I'm going to start out with a question. You guys have both, uh, Lady Brianna, I know you've read the DOJ report. Um, Jordan, have you read the uh, report also? I have, yes. So both of you read the report. I want you to tell me, based on the report, based on a total racial approach to that report, that report, what's supposed to happen to me in those two encounters I gave? <laughs> Did you want to uh, uh, start, Lady Brian? I mean, I don't need to read the report to understand what was supposed to happen. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. That's why y'all know. Y'all know. So y'all tell me. Y'all tell me. I mean, um, I mean, just for myself personally, I remember one time in D.C. Uh, I was driving and had left my license at a friend's house, and I left with like six or seven tickets. Yeah. To be honest, I yeah. mean, I got tickets for everything, yeah. um, and I really stern scolding. He pulled me out of the car. I'm in the middle of the street. Yep. Um, I'm in the middle of the street, and he's flashing his light at me. And I mean, it was really, it was a lot. I'm surrounded by like 10 officers, and this is all because I didn't have my license. So, I mean, you're lucky. Shout out to you. <laughs> I mean, but there, I mean, it has gone much worse for folks who um, have encounters with law enforcement and, you know, unfortunately don't have what they need to present at the time. So, I mean... It can it can always go a number of ways, and I think especially when you're in certain communities that are over policed, um, certain communities where there is this understanding that you have, you know, folks who are poor or folks who are black or what have you, and are likely to, you know, have guns or have drugs or have whatever in their car. Like these are folks who are continuously stopped. I remember reading in the report there was one man who was stopped over thirty times. Thirty-four. And and none of those times Nothing. was he ever arrested or given a citation. So we just know that that's the culture of things in Baltimore. So I mean, shout out to you. <laughs> well, well, I, so I, now, well, well, Jordan, I'll let you respond. And then yeah, I'll... no, I mean, I think the report, as uh, Lady Brian says, you know, documents this widespread culture of what they uh, call zero tolerance policing, which means that there's a targeting of uh, black people, black working class people in particular. So you know. Freddie Gray could get stopped multiple times in one week with no charges. You know, there's multiple citations of people getting uh, stopped over over 10 times. Uh, there's a, a culture where there's actually, you know, in 20, in 2005, the report says, you know, 100,000 people were arrested out of a city of 600,000, and these are disproportionately black people. But to your point, Lester, and your fine piece in the Jacobin and policing class, I think we need to have a race and class analysis because it doesn't account for the ways in which, you know, the, and I think you also point out there that these, uh, there's two neighborhoods that are targeted uh, in the massive arrest and criminalization happening in Baltimore, uh, the downtown uh, business district and then the uh, working class neighborhoods like Sandtown. And I think we need to think, as you do in that piece, uh, about how we might have a more complex and complicated analysis of race, class, and policing. Yeah, so I didn't, so I brought up those stories, and um, Jordan re refers to a, a piece I wrote in uh, The Jacobin. It's available online. Uh, I brought up those stories. Um, be, uh, so this is a trifling side note. So I called in to Sean Yost. Uh, Sean Yost has a show uh, at 5 p.m., Mondays through Fridays on WEAA. Excellent. He's actually, a lot of people don't know this, but he's actually one of the journalists who uncovered the zero to the effects of zero tolerance policing in the mid-90s. And um, I called them up uh, once we were talking about the DOJ report just to emphasize that we were talking about a race dynamic. It's really clear that um, the Baltimore police has basically acted as an engine of kind of social control of black residents, right? But talking about it by race alone, you'd miss the significant class dynamics. With one, uh, with one exception that I'll, I'll get to in a second, right? So I, I bring up, I bring up this point on uh, Sean Yost, and uh, one of his other callers called in, and he misinterpreted my comment. He thought that I was arguing that policing in Baltimore was primarily a class dynamic, and I was not. What I was arguing was that the way we under we best understand what uh, Baltimore policing 
by a combination of race and class, right? So if you, that is, if you took um, black people of a range of different incomes and you compare their experiences to police to whites of a range of different incomes, black people, no matter how much loot they would make, would be treated poorer by the police. They'd be more likely to be stopped, more likely to be ticketed, more likely to be harassed. That's really clear, right? Every piece of data we have says that. But if you instead just look at black people, and let's say you take 100 black people, you have 10 of them who are, who are wealthy, you have 30 who are working class and middle income, and then you have 60 who are poor, those 60 who are poor are going to be treated far poorer by the police than those, definitely than those 10 who are wealthy, but even by those 30, right? And I think that there's a problem in taking my individual story and saying that that's the thing. And, and, and that, that's, that w- I wouldn't make that claim. I wouldn't be, you know, that would be like, oh, my God, police are fine. They treat me okay. I wouldn't do that. And to be, and to be frank, I was really surprised when that happened to me too because by all rights, by my own previous encounters with police, when I was a kid growing up, you know, I'm supposed to be in jail. I'm, su- I'm supposed to have, just like Lady Brianna, I'm supposed to have several tickets. I'm supposed to be harassed publicly. And because I don't even know whose car I'm driving, I'm probably supposed to be in the joint. Right. But it's that class dynamic that we have to talk about. So one question and then I'll talk about um, I'll talk about, uh, I think, the exception, which brings up the gender dynamic. Uh, Why do you think to the extent that there's a pushback in black communities with uh, uh, bringing a class into play? Why does that why do you think that pushback might happen? Um, Lady Rianne, I'll start with you and then I'll go to Jordan. Well, I think. Honestly, I think people don't have the kind of complex understanding that you were talking about as it relates to the intersection of like class and race when we have conversations like this. And I also think that because Baltimore is, um, I mean, for me, it's a predominantly black city. And so people get confused when you're talking about black officers policing black people, right? Yeah. Black mayor, right? A lot of black folks policing other black folks. And then it, it, it gets very confusing when it's like, you know, is it just race? Is it just class? Is it a combination of things? If it's just class, then why don't white people get treated the same? Okay, then it's clearly race, right? People have this kind of either or mentality yeah. when it comes to these things. And it's very hard for them to conceptualize the ways in which both both of those in, things interacting together is really what causes the dynamics that we have I mean if you for me I think a prime example is when the uprising was happening um, I think that one of the one of the most telling things is the is the response that people had when the baseball game had to happen with no one in the seats right right? I mean that the response to that um, was I think just telling how much this really is about money how much this really is about protecting the the interests of businesses um, in the city, how much it really is about rich versus poor. Um, and, and this doesn't exclude class, but, the, but those two things are definitely playing together. Yeah. Yeah. And that is what you see um, coming out when we're, when we're talking about the policing practices in Baltimore. And I think that the, the pushback is just that um, – you know, I, I just think it's that either or thing. I don't yeah. think that people can really understand how those things play with one another. I think that's what it is. So, uh, Jordan, before, I, real quick, I'll get, I'm coming to you in just a second, but I just wanted to tell our callers, make sure you call in at 410-319-8888. You can also email us at talk at steinershow.org, and you can tweet us at, um, at me, at Lester Spence, um, or at Mark Steiner. Uh, Jordan, so I'll actually follow up with you. So what are the political, so to the extent we're dealing with an either-or type thing, what are the, the political effects of that dynamic? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I think part of the question is that the racist state violence that is documented in the report is so pervasive and persistent. I mean, according to The Guardian, this year alone we have over 600 people who have been killed by the police. And, you know, it's not just uh, – by gunfire. I mean, after all, you know, you have Eric Garner, you know, choked to death uh, in Staten Island, uh, or, you know, uh, a woman in California who's, uh, you know, beaten half to death by a California highway patrol. And I think this pervasive persistence and spectacular instances of racist state violence that we see played over and over again on social media and in media, it leads to the kind of analytic that uh, is, is understandable, but 
if you want to get into the kind of uh, class uh, dynamics around Sandtown or uh, neighborhoods in Baltimore, it's kind of unavoidable. I mean, after all, you know, in the neighborhood where Gray lived when he was killed, the unemployment rate hovered above 20 percent, while poverty rates were over 30 percent. And one in four of black working class people in that neighborhood experienced arrest. And as you point to, Lester, these conditions have been compounded by a situation where we've seen cuts in funding for public education, health care, parks, playgrounds, and libraries. And this affects working class people uh, as a whole, right? And I, I think that it's really important that we look at these underlying class dimensions also in the context of mass incarceration, which uses huge amounts of expenditure that would otherwise go towards these public services and uses it to lock people up. I mean, as Anjali Kamat, an independent journalist who did a great film on uh, police violence in Baltimore observes, over $17 million alone is spent annually to incarcerate poor people from Sandtown, Winchester yeah. alone. Yeah, that's absolutely right. That's, that's absolutely the highest right. rate of incarceration of any neighborhood in the state. In Maryland, yes. right? And so we have to keep this racist state violence at the forefront of our analytic alongside these underlying class dimensions to get at the political economy of incarceration, policing, uh, and prisons. So what I want to do is take quickly take a caller. Uh, Clarence has been waiting for about five minutes. I apologize, Clarence. You want to say something? Yes, sir. Thank you for taking the, thank you for taking the call. Um, I would look at this in this aspect, social segregation by economic and educational deprivation. Now, that is strictly forced into what you call the class based on the color of my skin. That's the underlying common, um, the, the least common denominator in it, my, the color of my skin. In all of those instances, no matter where they were, if they were in a poor black community or any other community, for instance, when the guy was shot in the back, if he had been white, I doubt I, I would I would doubt that he would have been shot in the back like that. The young lady who filmed her boyfriend with the kid in the cab, if he had been a white individual, I doubt very seriously if that police officer would have approached that car in the mat and shot him like that. Yeah. I can't get to class because the class is a manifestation of uh, well, it represents the color of the skin. It's about race. Get to class later on, but, you know, it is about the color of my skin. I can't go there. I can't put my hand up um, in front of a bullet that's fired by a police officer and say, oh, wait a minute, Mr. Bullet, um, I'm not part of that class. You, you know, it doesn't work like that in my mind. I'm sorry, Dr. Spence, but, you know, thank oh, you for You know what, Clarence? You're the one. You're the reason I got this show. I want to thank you. <laughs> You're the one who called Sean Yo's, aren't you? Yes, I was. Yeah, that thank was you. Good. You're the reason we're doing this hour. Shout out to my yeah. man Clarence. You're the reason. <laughs> for real, for real. So, so here's the question. Then we got to go to break, Clarence. So, I, I, but, so if you just took black people, as Lady Breon notes, Baltimore's majority black. If you just yes, took sir. black people in Baltimore, you've got some black people with a lot of loot. Some black people who are working class, and then this large group of black people who are poor. Those black people who are poor, we know they're treated a worse by police than the um, than the black people who are well off. That's the class at work, right? Yeah, but it's still they're segregated into those pockets by the color of skin. That's, yeah. that's, that's what that's why I say um, social segregation by economic and educational deprivation based on the color of their skin. Yeah. So then you move up the ladder to, to, to class, if, and you want, if you want to label it class, but it's still based on the color of their skin. Yeah. Um, thanks you so much for calling. And thanks for calling the Sean Yo Show, because I've been thinking about this. I've been thinking about this, and when I pitched, when I knew I was going to be guest hosting, I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna, <laughs> I need to, to tackle this. Thank you so much for calling. Yes, thank you, Dr. Spence. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, you know what we have? Uh, how much more do we have till break? Yeah, I'll take another caller. Gabe. Hi, Professor. Um, class, yeah, and race, but class, my God, it's so depressing, like crabs in the barrel. I mean, 
who is the judge but a black man? Who is the mayor but a black lady? And you tell me they're not on the side of the FOP as much as... I mean, maybe mention some of the revolutionary groups that are out there and the, mention the word capitalism, definitely class. And uh, I give a lot of perks to you and Mark Steiner, the greatest show in Baltimore. People should donate. But capitalism and class... First, they're the ones that stir up the racism. They're behind the FOP. Believe me, they're behind Port Covington and all the stuff people are complaining about. But the color, the skin color is there too. That's true. My barber is black, and he is saying the judge was a joke. Come on, folks. Thank you. Thank you very much, Gabe. Yeah, so one way to think of one way I've been thinking about this, and I think we're at a different moment in organizing. I think we're at a different moment in organizing than we were, but the last time we were talking about police uh, harassment, what that dovetailed into policy-wise was a series of laws designed to curtail driving while black, right? So, the, so and driving while black is, we articulated it as a racial policy, but what that really was was a rate was a class policy, and that the whole you had to a have a car to be to be stopped driving while black. B you had to have a car that you weren't quote unquote supposed to have, which meant that the car would be kind of worth some loot. And so you're talking about a, a form of police harassment that was concentrated amongst black people with loot, and all of a sudden that becomes the way to deal with police brutality. So un- taking that lens, you end up ignoring. All the range, all the forms of harassment that are visited upon poor and working class pop, black populations. Again, I think we're in a different moment, but that, but we're in a very, very different moment. But um, I think we're still we st- unless we're able to bring class into play. I, th- I think we're we're at risk of of, of falling back into that trap. Um, Jordan. Yeah, no, I appreciate that a lot. I mean, after all, you know, the DOJ report, uh, as I mentioned before, it notes that zero tolerance policing, you know, which was imported under uh, uh, Mayor Martin O'Malley from New York, which is uh, often associated with the current police commissioner, Bill Bratton's style of, again, zero tolerance, or as we call it in, in, in the book, Police in the Planet, broken windows policing. Yeah. And this model of policing has been named as the root of the unrest, discrimination, racist-style policing from Staten Island to Baltimore to Los Angeles to Ferguson, and indeed it's been exported around the world. And that model, I think, as the DOJ report underscores, is currently in crisis. And I think we have to ask ourselves, in this crisis, it's no longer seen as legitimate in these neighborhoods, what kind of solutions uh, are up on offer? And if you look at the uh, proposed solution in the DOJ report, it's community policing. Oh, wow. Right? Instead of purportedly uh, 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 zero tolerance policing. And this is a difference without a difference, right? (laughs) Because after all, Bratton himself says that uh, there's no uh, well, let me let me get the quote. Broken windows policing is probably the most vivid example of community policing there is. So again, zero tolerance is broken windows policing. And if you look at the Obama administration's approach to community policing, you know they have this office called COPS or Community Oriented Policing that's been working with the DOJ, and they're going to be key in working with the city of Baltimore in developing this consent decree. It looks very much, as Naomi Murakawa points out, like President Lyndon Johnson's approach uh, to policing they developed in the 1960s. And what do they want to do? They want to diversify the police uh, officers, even though, you know, Baltimore is 42 percent black. They want to offer uh, more body cameras. They want more diversity training and so on. But what this leaves untouched is the underlying class conditions of poverty, the spectacle of mass uh, unemployment that give rise to these uh, encounters, uh, violent encounters between police 
and, uh, you know, citizens to use their language to begin with. So I think that we need to step back and have a kind of big picture approach. Why is it that they want to aggressively police, as you point out again, the downtown central uh, business district, right? They want to clear those spaces of the unemployed, of the homeless, of the poor, to make that area of the city more attractive for capital investment, right? More attractive for businesses. And this has been the same way that this form of policing has been pursued in cities around the country. That's the Manhattan model, right? Yeah. So uh, I think that we need to think about zero tolerance, broken windows policing, community policing as essential mechanisms for the gentrification of, of space on one hand and for trapping the problems of race and class and particular boundaries uh, on the other. That's a perfect way to segue into uh, into our break. We've got a few different callers. I see you, Donna. We're about to talk about Donna uh, about gender as it relates to class. Next, uh, I, I, um, I I don't have that twisted, um, but we'll be back in a couple of minutes. Thank you. guest hosting for Mark Steiner. We've been talking about the DOJ bringing in kind of a race and class analysis. I've been, I'm joined by Jordan Camp. Jordan Camp is postdoctoral fellow of Race, Ethnicity, and International Public Affairs at Brown University, author of Incarcerating the Crisis, Freedom Struggles, and the Rise of the Neoliberal State, and co-editor of uh, Policing the Planet. The reason I brought him on is because I think those two books are really, really powerful and important to understand in the contemporary moment. And then Lady Breon, spoken word artist and Baltimore's Grand Slam champion. Every time I say that, I want to do a dance, but I can't because I'm in studio. <laughs> Resident poet for Le- Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle, program manager for Do More Baltimore. So... I actually, so whenever we talk about race and class together, there's two challenges. One challenge is that we have the either-or problem that uh, I think Lady Brian brought up. But then the other challenge is that we actually miss gender. We, we can talk about race and, a class, race and class in a way where we're basically all talking about dudes and, and gender gets washed out. Absolutely. I'd actually, I'd suggest two things. One is that, is that uh, if you look at the report, the police have this troubling tendency of extorting uh, sex from sex workers. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Right? And I think that's a dynamic that's basically race, gender, and class coming into play because sex workers in Baltimore tend to be uh, working, to, uh, working income to poor. Uh, but then there is one dynamic that I think is class um, independent. That is, I think class has little to do with this. And this is the way that police actually deal with sexual assault claims. Lady Brian, you wanted to uh, Yeah, I think that, I mean, I think that was a perfect way to kind of bring us into this conversation because um, we talk about uh, the intersection of gender, race, and class. I mean, the first thing that absolutely comes to mind is those sex workers who are, you know, at sometimes forced to encounter the police in the most unjust ways, right? And so you, you, I, I know there was a story um, in the DOJ's report about, you know, a sex worker who comes to the police. They, she says her assailant pulled out a gun on her and was trying to rape her. Um, and the response is just kind of like, well, you know, what can you do for us? And maybe we can charge him for the gun. Right. Yeah, yeah, you know, this yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, this kind yeah, of stuff is just yeah. is just completely yeah. unjust. And I think that there are countless um, stories about women who have to choose if they're going to use their sexuality to get some form of justice yeah. from um, the police department. Right. And, you know, these these are always going to be, you know, the, the poorest <laughs> um, um, uh women in our community and oftentimes these are going to be black women. Right. Oftentimes these are going to be transgendered yeah, women. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and so it, it's, it's just very troubling to to know that there is just this, you know, kind of un, undocumented, so to speak, situation where where sex is introduced as a means to get some form of justice. Yeah. And also this belief that because you are a sex worker that you can't experience sexual violence or that you can't yes. experience yes. violence in any way because your work happens to be related to sex. Right. Um, and so it was very troubling. But more, not more importantly, but in addition, 
addition to that, right, because I think that's one side of it, the other side of it is just this um, – all of the the patriarchy, sexism, and just the undertones of rape culture that's all throughout um, the the kind of report as it relates to sexual assault cases, right? I, I know that there was one quote um, that the DOJ um, put in the report about how an officer was saying, you know, in homicide, they have real victims, but all of our victims are just BS. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and then they yeah, come yeah, back and right. say, OK, just 90 percent is BS. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. As if yeah. that's any better. Yes, yes, um, and it's just yes. kind of this this idea that, you, you know, because instances of rape and sexual assault are oftentimes harder to prove, because, as we know, there are oftentimes between someone that, you know, um, oftentimes it's, it's in a house or somewhere where the only other witness is the assailant themselves. Right. Because it is harder to prove is one of those things that are just written off. And also because it's dealing with women and we live in a society that is just rife with patriarchy, it is something that we're not even willing to do the work for. And the report shows that, right? One of the things that I saw that was just troubling is that, you know, less than 15% of rape kits are ever even tested, right? And that 53 to 58% of sexual assault cases are just left open, yeah. right? Yes. And and yes. it's almost strategic in that they don't want to say that it's unfounded, so they just leave it open yeah. to almost say, well, we're doing something. But the reality is they're just left open yeah. forever, and nobody ever goes back to interview anybody, to, to get witness statements. And the arrest rates are just, I mean, it's below half of the nation's average in, yeah. in arrest for sexual assault cases. So it's just troubling. These findings are just criminal, to be honest. And real quick, and then I'm going to take a call. It's uh, worth noting that this isn't uh, this isn't uh, independent or this isn't uh, just focused on Baltimore. I know in Detroit there are at least 10,000 rape kits that have gone untested. They were just found in a warehouse. Tens of thousands of rape kits that were just found in a warehouse untested. And I know in an, at least one other incident, I think the vice president had to go somewhere to raise money for rape kids getting tested, as if there isn't already money in the budget. Absolutely. That's something that's structural, and that's something, again, that's class dynamic, uh, that's class uh, independent. On that note, um, Donna, I, I apologize for all my callers. I want to get to some of them now. Donna. Hey, Donna, are you still there? Hey, Donna, are you still there? Could you take the next call and let me clear my throat? <laughs> oh, okay, that's fine. Uh, Sabor. Is Sabor there? Yes, sir. How you doing? I'm doing all right. How are you? All right. I'm just my take is on that one thing that's bothered me is that what Father said because of how they deal with the blacks in terms of the women on the rape cases and it's like they put it under the table. Now, in my case, I was, you know, I was incarcerated. Okay, I've been on that for 35 years. Um, the the, the uh, incarceration with it, where we made the judges chairs, that's just all that. They're making a lot of money on that, too. Okay, and what I don't like is blacks that when they become successful, when they get theirs, they dig out theirs, and they forget about where they come from. And, you know, it's, it's all about us sticking together. This is what I've learned. This is the African way. You know, and that's just my take on it. That's what I was going to say. Oh, thanks a lot, brother. I appreciate it. Uh, Cecil. Thank you. Hey, Cecil. Are you on there? Yes. How are you doing? How, how's everybody? Everybody's fine. Great. All right. Um, I was just, uh, I really wanted to, uh, it's kind of getting away from what y'all were talking about, but has anybody ever heard of the uh, King Alfred plant? Yeah, I have. Okay, yeah, well, a lot of people haven't, and if you were to Google it, it acts as if it's, it's uh, fictitious, but it actually was enacted. Uh, it's actually a key part thing, the King Alfred plant, which is in, uh, it basically was trying to, for all the black activists, and organizations back in the 60s, such as the Black Panther Party and, you know, so on and so on. Uh, it was enacted to, uh, in case there was a race war, what the plan was to uh, put us all in concentra- uh, concentration camps. And uh, they had they had uh, places around, military bases, that they would ship us into, and they called, uh, put, they were enacted in regions, certain regions, northeast, the Southeast, uh, Midwest, just that and other. And uh, back in 84, uh, it was signed in order by uh, President Reagan with the help of uh, Oliver Moore. They called that the Rep 84. 
And that was enacted for also because they started saying that there's some Latino people. And so they were included also. So people of color, um, it's, it's, it almost seems like it's fictitious and uh, uh, something that is overwhelming or, or just couldn't happen. But if you look at uh, what's going on today, and you would have thought maybe five years ago that none of this stuff that's happening now would have been, you know, yeah. uh, uh, part of society. Yeah. But I think that it's just a lot of uh, uh, wealthy people pulling the strings, and uh, they, they're having the uh, so-called middle middle class, which the white people, uh, the white middle class, they don't see themselves as a, a middle class. So I think it's just... Uh, they're using psychology, and and their thinking is that we don't have any we don't have any structure or be able to save any money, and uh, so now they're afraid. But actually, it's a class thing. So, like you said, uh, it's basically basically tying in the uh, the, uh, the class and the uh, the race into one. If you if you kind of yeah. follow what I'm saying, uh, I do. Um, Thank you. Thank you very much, Lisa. I appreciate it. Uh, Donna, are you there? Hey, Donna. Thanks for that. Oh, that's okay. Um, when we talk about gender class, when we look at the whole issues of police brutality, somebody has to make money off of, and I look at it from an economic perspective, if people don't commit crime or perceive to commit crime, which is our people, because a lot of our people don't commit crime, they can stand on the corner and just, you know, to stand on the corner and, and shake hands with people and they'll get arrested. <clears throat> you have, you know, I look at it from a perspective of somebody has to make money. If the police don't have enough work to do, they're not going to make money. They're going to lay off. I also look at it when you come, when you talk about gender, we, uh, when you say the population of Baltimore City is predominantly poor, it's not only, I mean, predominantly black, it's not only predominantly black, but it all, most of the people in both the poor are mostly children. So when we look at children, we have to find out what the dynamics of the socioeconomic state of the children. Yeah. In our city, well, we have, a, we have a, a large population of poor women who are being used by the system to stay, you know, to stay, keep jobs. If you keep women poor, you keep children poor, you keep a system a cycle of the judicial system going because it's like a cycle. If you put it in a, if you put it in a flow chart, you would see the whole system that was set up. So if you keep women poor, you keep children poor. Children stay poor. They want items and things they can't get. They steal. They commit crimes, and then the police step in because every time our people get arrested or um, or issues of police brutality. It's always perceived that because of their poor, and what is true, their poor. Um, let me let me clear up my my post is. I'm looking at gender and women. Gender, women and gender, poverty breeds socioeconomics, and if you don't continue to keep children poor and uneducated, if the system does that, the police departments all across the country will continue to profit off of poverty of our children, our women. And I wanted you guests to talk about that because that is an issue that we don't really focus on when it comes to poverty children and how the police department actually profits off of our people. And I wanted to hang up and listen. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on, but I, I, before I give uh, Jordan a chance to respond to Lady Breon, I just want to note that uh, Baltimore Police Department, they spend approximately $480 million. And as uh, my colleague Lawrence Bryan notes, I think that's actually before uh, overtime is taken into account. $480 million. Um, in 1990, they spent $145 million. And by way of comparison, 1990, they spent $37 million on Parks and Rec. Uh, 2015, they spent $37 million on Parks and Rec. Uh, Jordan, you wanted to chime in? Or did yeah, you well, to the first to the point about uh, gender and policing, I mean, I, I thought that the report's uh, assertion that there was no reasonable cause to believe that the Baltimore Police Department engages in gender-biased policing in violation of federal law was disingenuous at best. 
And the reason that I think this is because, again, you know, they name zero tolerance as a problem, but what they don't name is the ways in which that form of policing has targeted, uh, as uh, Lady Breon pointed out, uh, people of color, queers, trans, and gender nonconforming people, uh, the homeless and youth, when their uh, existence is not conducive to the accumulation process uh, under capitalism. And I think this is actually really uh, important when we're thinking about the race and class and gender dynamics that we understand, um, as we argue, that broken windows or zero tolerance policing is a project that justifies and sustains a neoliberal social order. In other words, it helps render people simultaneously less worthy of the state's shrunken largesse, you know, cuts in education, health care, and so on, and more deserving of its expanded punitive pe- capacities. So, you know, in these campaigns, they've targeted, as Lady Breon pointed out, sex workers aggressively. I mean, if you look through the documents, you know, they say, uh, that street prostitution is one of the things that creates disorder alongside what they describe as aggressive panhandling, squeegee cleaners, and so on. So I think we need to keep this at the forefront of our analytic because these policing practices treat people with problems, that is, with a lack of housing, job security, food services, and so on, as the problem. Right. In other words, as as criminals. And and the last thing I'll say is I would be remiss not to note that as we speak on the radio right now, Black Youth Project 100 has been protesting. Somebody mentioned the FOP, the Fraternal Order of Police Conference, taking place in Maryland this week. And they make reference to the DOJ report. They demand justice for Corinne Gaines, the 23 year old woman who was shot by a Baltimore County police officer. And they had come, and this is instructive in thinking about race, class, and gender. They had come to serve a warrant in her home for allegedly yes. failing to respond to a traffic ticket. Yeah, that's right. And they end up shooting this woman, right? And so BYP 100 has been demanding to know the names of the officers who shot Gaines. And then... Uh, and they again, shot the kid, too. Under, uh, they shot the kid, too. Right, right. I'm sorry. And, and, and read the demands articulated in their visions for Black Lives platform. And I think as we think about issues of race and class and gender, this platform is really uh, crucial for articulating a vision of economic justice at its core. Everybody look this up, uh, Movement for Black Lives platform. And they also stated, these young people are in the streets, that the Fraternal Order of Polices, they've got 79 lodges in the state of Maryland, and they say that they, these lodges should be turned over to homeless centers and community centers, right? So there's a redistributive justice uh, vision at the heart of the Black Lives Matter movement that I think that we can learn from. Oh, thanks a lot. Lady Breon? Um, so I think an- another thing that came to mind when I was reading um, the DOJ's report is this idea um, about why it's so hard, um, I think, for a lot of people who experience sexual assault and violence to even want to report um, what's happened to them to the police, knowing this is the kind of response, right? So if I know that, one, I will be interrogated like it's my fault when I get to the police department, right? Um, Like, I remember there was one quote um, that said, why are you trying to ruin this guy's life, <laughs> um, was was what was said when they entered into the um, interrogation room. Or if I know that the likelihood of anyone actually investigating what happened to me, mm-hmm. right, why would I put myself through all um, of, of that spectacle when I know the result is probably no one will be arrested, no one will be charged with anything, and I will have to live with what happened to me um, and, and, and try to make myself as safe as possible. So so I probably should just keep it to myself, right? And so it, it, it speaks to um, the reason why a lot of people just keep quiet about instances like this, and I think it's, it's, it's the institutional response. Yeah. Um, um, furthermore, I think with all of this conversation, the thing that I think um, we really need to discuss is the lack within the DOJ's report. For me, it's like, 
why aren't we attacking or doing something about the policies and practices that exist that prevent um, the best practices within the police force, right? We talk about all of these things that are wrong, but we don't start to identify, okay, here are the things that could be changed legislatively, right, that would mandate better police practices, right? Why are we not talking about the Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights? Why are we not talking about um, the the um, review board, right, that currently does not mandate that we have civilians on the board, right? When you talk about instances of sexual assault and violence, if you had experts in that field, right, because I'm bringing this up to say that there was even less information about how there is sexual assault um, within the police department, yeah, right? Yeah, within right. the police department or, or um you know, sexual assault that is engaged with um, a police officer, right? There's even less information about that, despite the fact that they don't even investigate when when, um, people bring those kind of issues to the police department. So when we are saying that those kind of things are happening with police officers or police officers should be charged with those kind of things, you don't even have experts who are around that could um, say, you know, the, this this is that kind of behavior. They should be charged yeah. accordingly. Or you don't have the people around who can train the officers with the kind of know-how yeah. to see what it looks like when these things are happening, right? So there are just all these things that are non-existent, and I don't see the DOJ pushing that we yeah. change things legislatively to make sure that these officers can be held accountable for yeah. instances of sexual assault and violence. And again, that's that that is the one dynamic that's not that's that's separate and distinct. This is not a race and class intertwined thing. This goes up and down, up and down. Uh, we've got a couple of callers. I want to squeeze them in before we uh, go to break. Kevin. Um, my name is Kevin, and I, I wanted to talk about the uh, 13th Amendment, which of Hi, I'm, my name is Kevin, and I wanted yeah. to talk about the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery, except in penal institutions. Yeah. So when we now look at this criminal industrial complex that's going on in America, where you have Whole Foods using prisoners in Colorado to make their dip, a lot of people don't know that a lot of local, state, and even the federal government is depending on that prison labor. So that's, that's kind of fueling a lot of what's happening. And also we need to look at our police department, not actually what is budgeted, but what do they spend? You know, like, so they budgeted $500 million to spend, but they're actually spending $800 million. That's why a lot of these cities are in trouble, because the police department, the numbers that they're spending is much more than what was even budgeted. So we think about what happened in Baltimore last year. Like, what was actually spent last year in policing as opposed to the what was budgeted? And, and, and that's what's going on with a lot of these militarized police departments. Thanks a Thanks a lot, Kevin. And as an aside, um, I'm working with a, a public health scholar to actually study how police has been sp- how uh, police uh, have been spending their money going back to the '60s. If we can get the data, uh, Sean, you're uh, you're on the Mike Steiner show. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, I just wanted to talk about how this report also shows the criminalization of actually being black. I actually live in Colombia. And when you talk about panhandling on Route 175 every single day, I see at least three white panhandlers, and it's the same one, but they're never targeted or stopped. Yeah. I live in a community which is uh, it's diverse, but my next-door neighbor every single day smokes a joint and drinks a beer walking around the lake. Yeah. He's never going to get stopped. And when you think about the sex workers, well, we have other sex workers that are called escort services. They're not criminalized. So it kind of piggybacks on what the other caller just said is this is a criminalization. It takes away our our, our votes. It disenfranchises us and it fills quotas and gives them what they want. Well, thanks. Thanks a lot, Sean. Uh, Jordan and Lady Brienne, we have about a couple of minutes left. I want to actually touch on something that uh, one of the callers brought up, the idea of black unity being the being the tool that we could best use to deal with this issue. I want you guys to kind of speak to. The, the possibilities and the but the challenges uh, in that notion that black unity is going to necessarily be the thing. And I'll start with Lady Brianna. 
Um, I think that it is absolutely um, necessary for us to come together um, as black people to stand against um, instances of, of violence against our, our community and all the ways yeah. that they exist. Um, I think that a good example is, you know, back to the point that I was making before about us pushing for legislative changes that mandate um, different practices within um, the police department and how they engage um, with our people. I think that a part of it is we have to come together and go out to a national in droves in yeah. order to testify and, and show that these are the things that are most important to us, right? Yeah. We all have loved ones who are accosted by police officers, who are disrespected by police officers, you know, all types of violence and whatnot, and yet we don't have the, the wherewithal to understand that we need to band together and go yeah. do something about it. So yeah. I think that unity is absolutely um, what needs to, to drive and push us um, for, you know, progress. Um, um, and a better tomorrow. And I think that when we can see that coming together against um, uh, uh, an oppressive force is, is, is the most power that we have, yeah. then I think that we can really start making some change. Uh, Jordan, you want to chime in? We have got about a couple minutes left. Okay, great. Um, well, I, I think that, uh, you know, contemporary uh, black struggles against police violence and mass incarceration are but the latest phase in a long and protracted struggle and certainly that the Black Lives Matter movement in particular has shaken the legitimacy or, or given rise to a crisis of legitimacy for policing and prisons and I think shown the ways in which this racist police and state violence is systemic and rendered uh, intelligible the ways in which not only black people are, are killed but you know native people in places like Albuquerque New Mexico are uh, violently murdered by police at uh, disproportionate rates that, uh, you know, Latinos uh, are killed in, in cities all around the country, that indeed this is a multiracial fight, and that uh, we've, I've seen evidence where you've seen uh, new forms of uh, solidarity that have come into being to fight with Black Lives Matter, but to connect this uh, across different sectors uh, of the working class. And I think that this racist state violence, since it not only kills black people, but Native Americans, Latinos, and poor whites, is also uh, a basis for solidarity. The last thing I'll say is, you know, this is not just uh, the problem of the police. This is a problem of a system. We live in a country with historic rates of inequality. Uh, the rich no longer want to pay taxes. They've gone on tax strike. You know, prisons have become holding pens for the unemployed. So if we want to imagine uh, emancipatory solutions to this crisis, I think uh, that we really need to listen to Lester Spence and uh, Lady Breon in Baltimore about um, thinking about these race and class uh, dynamics because the stakes are high. Oh, thank you very much, and that's the perfect way to end. Uh, Jordan, I want to probably bring you back to Baltimore. Please holler at me. Jordan Camp, Lady Breon, thank you so much. We've been talking about the DOJ. We're about to take a break, uh, and then when we come back, talk about Flint, another example of economic violence. Uh, on our way to break, I want to remind you that the Mark Steiner Show is brought to you by MeQ, Baltimore's credit union, offering a full range of financial services. MeQ, Baltimore's credit union, is helping its members and its community prosper. When you invest in yourself, MeQ invests in you. More information at www.meq.com. <laughs> 